morning, everybody. I am indeed glad to be here this evening, and I'm glad to be able to talk about sex. <laughs> uh, that's why I'm here this evening specifically, uh, to talk about sex. Do y'all remember that song, Let's Talk About Sex? Any, I got anybody, any witnesses? Yeah, for you, y'all, for you, y'all. Um, so I'm glad to be able to, to kind of talk about it, and not just, you know, talk about it, because honestly, we hear enough about it in media. We hear enough about it through um, the movies and sitcoms and all of, all of the sort. But what I really want to do is give a, a biblical foundation for what God intended sex to, no, no, let me say it like this, what God intends sex to be post-fall. Can we go there? Uh, when I think about pre-fall and post-fall, I think there's a little bit of difference between God's intention pre-fall and God's intention post-fall. So I want us to focus, since we're post-fall, <laughs> we're, we're post-Genesis 3, um, then I want us to kind of stay in that vein this evening. And like Pastor Edmund said, there's going to be time for questions and answers, and so don't hesitate to, um, to, to write down your questions and, and, and give them in. Um, when I think about sex, and I'm actually going to use this board, so if you're on the sides and you can't see the board real well, then please position yourself so that you can see it. When I think about sex, we're very clear that sex is more than the sum of all its parts. Sex is not about um, just hormones and body parts somehow colliding together and, and all of a sudden you have sex. Sex is much more than just the sum of a few people getting together, one or two people getting together, two people getting together and colliding for a few moments in time, and then they've had this thing called sex. But sex is something much more spiritual, it's something more emotional, it's something more psychological than all of those things. In fact, if we were to say that sex was just a sum of all its parts, it's almost like saying, comparing sex to um, a cake, saying that a cake is nothing more than ingredients. If I gave you a piece of cake and I said, well, what does this cake taste like? If you tell me it tastes like egg, then something is wrong with that. Or if you said it tastes like milk, man, this, tastes, this cake tastes just like milk, there, there would be a problem with the cake. But we know that the cake is the sum of eggs and milks and, and flour and sugar and all of these things. But when you have it all combined together, it's something that your, 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 your taste buds will celebrate. And so it is with sex that when you have all of these different elements, the hormones and the body parts and the emotions and the spiritual element, all these things kind of come together in one at one moment. It's something that the entire holistic person should be able to celebrate and something that God is glorified by. So we're going to talk about it. And I'm actually going to go up here because I want to. I want to use this. As we talk about it this evening, the first thing I want to do is I want you to give me, because we know that we live in a world that everything is driven by sex. Commercials are driven by sex. Movies are driven by sex. Everything. I mean, you can't buy a car without it being advertised with sex. Everything is driven by sex. And so we know that the world has a concept and a view of what sex is. And I want you to talk back to me, you know, briefly. And I want you to give me what you perceive the world's concept of sex is. And I'm going to write it up here. So don't raise your hand, just shout it out, I'm going to write it. What? Fun, okay. Okay, okay. Let me move this here in the middle. And you can turn it down in the monitors just a little bit. We're going to put it up here. World. Okay, you said the world, world's view is what? Fun, what else? Exotic, what else? Fulfillment, okay. Okay, what else? Pleasure. You said what? Lacking or without what? Commitment. Okay, what else? Wild. Wild. Come on now, talk to me. 
listen, listen, listen. The, the sensors are off. Pastor Edmonds told me, listen, the sensors are off. You all, I need y'all to talk to me in this place. What else would you say the world's view of or the world's description? When you, when you look at how the world describes, talks about, promotes at sex, what do you see? Power. P-O-W-E-R. Power. Okay. Ecstasy. We kind of got exotic there. We'll, we'll, we'll let that one flow there. What else? What else do you think? Free. Sex is free. Okay. On the internet. Okay. On the internet. <laughs> That's good. What else? Sex is money. How is sex money? Prostitutes. Okay. So you need a little bit of money. Well, we just said sex was free. We're going to put free with costs. We'll say it like that. I don't know. Okay. What else? What else? What else? Enticing. Okay, that's a good one. What else? What's that? Sex makes you popular. How so? Okay. What? Exercise. Now, y'all know y'all, y'all, y'all lying up in here. Sex is exercise. Okay, we're going we're gonna to work with it. We're going to work with it. We're going to work with it. Um, um, okay, exercise. Should I put that one up here, exercise? Okay. Does the world portray sex as love? Yes, okay. And can we also put lust? I mean, it's a form, it's a form. Okay. Anything else? Anything else? What do you say? Mouth watering. So we, we got enticing. We got enticing. Okay, okay. Mouth watering. Now, so this, this is, and you know, you got to mind my chicken scratch, but I just want to come on. I enjoy writing. I like, it helps me and it helps you see. And some people are, you know, they're visual learners. Um, so, so the world definitely gives us a perspective. It sells us a perspective on sex. How many of you all, at any point in your life, now be honest with yourself, um, bought into what, how the world describes sex. Come on, I'll be honest. Yeah, all of us in here. At some point, we bought into the hype. We bought into the hype. So on one end, we have what the world says sex is. However, on the other end, on the other end, this is going to be fun, we have what the church says sex is. Okay. Now hold on, my man. You said what? Sin? Sex is sin. Okay. Okay. Sacred. Sacred. Okay. Nasty. What else? Procreate. Procreate as like exclusively procreating. Yes. No. Okay. What else? For marriage. Okay. Dirty. You get that message? You got that message from the church? That sex is dirty. Sex is what? Forbidden. Okay. Forbidden. What else? It's what? How? So you said it's affirmation or it's Affirmation to affirm. Okay. Okay. 
It's a gift. From who? From God. Okay. Okay, we got married. Anything else? Anything else? Yes. What do you mean? You can't say no? Shh. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Say So you're saying that the message that the church gives concerning concerning sex is that within the marriage Okay. 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 Um Okay, we might be able to deal more with that in just a little bit. Okay. So we have, we have this picture. We have the picture that the world gives us, which is, which is a distortion of sex. Can we, say, can we agree to that? That the picture that the world gives us is a distortion of sex. And yet, on the other hand, and you, you all said some good things, but what I would have put up here, was that? Oh man, you're speaking my language. I would have said that the church is silent when it comes to sex. I mean, do, do we, does the church really give us a big, beautiful, dynamic picture of what sex is and how it's intended to be? And I mean, depending on what church you may attend, but generally speaking, the church, as I've seen it, the church has somewhat dealt with sex as kind of hush-hush. Like, let's not really deal with it. In fact, the church, from my experience, it deals with, at least when I was growing up, the church dealt with the church's response or the church's disposition uh, uh, to sex was actually a response to the world's. So because the world is so uh, uh, exotic and erotic and wild and crazy and loose, it's almost like the church swings to the other, other opposite and says, listen, we're not going to talk about it, you know, as between, uh, between man and woman. And, and, and that's, that's just it. Just, just, you know, the bedroom chamber, the bed is undefiled and we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to say anything. It's kind of hush, hush. Don't talk about it. And a lot of the church's experience or the church's lack of dealing with sex is largely because so many people in the church have a negative perception of what sex really is. And not even so much a perception, but people in the church have a negative, better word, experience with sex. And so because our experience is dirty and our experience is kind of suspect and grimy and our experience leaves us filled with guilt and remorse and regret and, 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 and anger that we just kind of don't even want to deal with this thing. Is that anyone's experience here? You, you know, you can you understand where I'm coming from. And so I think that somewhere between the church, the, the, the world's distortion of sex and the church's unfortunate denial of sex is God's ideal. And if we can somehow, if we can somehow wrestle with, okay, what does the world say about sex? And what does God say? And what does the church say about sex? And kind of somehow find out, God, what is your ideal? Why did you really, int- why did you create sex? What is it a part of? What, what, what role does it play in the marriage? And that's what I really want to take time and deal with today. Now, I want to, I want to, um, Put a disclaimer out there that, um, you know, a lot of us, myself included, we've had negative experiences with sexual relations. And so a lot of times when it comes to talking about God's ideal, our minds can't even go there. I mean, you're talking about holy and it's pure and it's 
righteous and it's undefiled and God, I mean, Ellen White says that the angels come into the bedroom and they, they, have you heard that? Yeah. And their, and their wings are just kind of hovering over the marriage bed when husband and wife are consummating their, 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 their wedding vows. And so we look at that and we see what God is saying and we say, man, I, I can't even fathom that because my experience with sex has been totally opposite. And so if you find, if you find yourself in that position tonight, I just want you to really try really hard to just try to reframe your, your experience just for a moment to kind of step out of where you have what your past experience has taught you about sex and try to just see what God originally intended sex to be. Are you willing to, to make that move with me? Amen. Okay. Okay. Um, first thing we know theologically that God created sex. Let the church say amen. God created sex. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say sex is a God thing. Come on, touch two people and say sex is a God thing. Sex is a God thing. Sex is a God thing. In fact, in fact, in fact, <laughs> in fact, you know, you know, you know that sex, you know that sex is a God thing because when you just look at how we are biologically created and we know that God created us, Amen. When you know how you are biologically created, the male sex organ has many functions. You're aware of that. Amen. Yeah. It's the male sex organ is more than just for sex. Let the men say amen. Let the men say amen. The male sex organ is used for more than just sex. Are y'all with me in here? All right. However, however, the female sex organ, the clitoris is only used exclusively for sex. Are y'all with me in here? That God created an organ that he said is only useful to be able to bring this woman sexual ecstasy. And so we know that because God created us and that he created, we are fearfully and wonderfully made and God designed our bodies and shaped them perfectly that God in fact created sex. However, from when God did it to where we are, there's been a whole lot of things that have gone on that have distorted our view. We're going to deal with it. In fact, I was doing some research today and I discovered that historically the church has had a jacked up perception of what sex is. And I just want to run through a few characters in the, in church history who have taught uh, negative aspects, or I've talked negatively about sex. The first is, let me see if I can get up there. One more. There we go. Clement of Alexandria. Uh, not a very good picture of Brother Clement, uh, but that, that is a, it's a drawing of him. Uh, he is one of the church fathers, not the Adventist church. I'm talking about the, you know, the Catholic church, but not in Catholic as you understand Catholic. Catholic as in universal church. You know, technically, we're, let, me not, let me not even go there. Okay, the universal, the universal church. Um, he was one of the fathers of the universal church. He taught that, that he allowed, you can, you can have unenjoyed and, pro, and procreative sex only during 12 hours out of a 24-hour day. And you can only do it at night. So if you're going to partake of sex, number one, you can't enjoy it. <laughs> And number two, it can only be for the purpose of procreation. And number three, you can only do it between 12 hours from, you know, I would say maybe sunset to sunset. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but 12 hours specifically the night. Clement of Alexander. Clement of Alexander. And these are individuals who kind of laid the bedrock for who we are today as a church. As a church. Let me show you another one. During the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages, the church, people were forbade from having sex 40 days before the festival of Christmas. 
40 days before and eight days after the festival of Easter. Eight days after what? Uh, the eaves of what? Feast days. And there are about 30 feast days. So about the eaves, like the day before the feast day, no sex. On Sunday, could not have sex in honor of the resurrection. On Wednesday, could not have sex to call to mind the beginning of Lent. On Fridays, could not have sex in memory of the, of the crucifixion. So, you, so we out. We, uh, Sunday's out. Wednesday's out. Friday, so what days does that leave you? Monday, Tuesday, uh, Thursday. S- no, Fridays are out. Saturdays, right. So four days, four days, four days. Let's keep looking. Um, could not have sex during pregnancy. Could not have sex 30 days after birth. And it was a male child. It should be male child. It was a male child. No, female child. 40 days. Could not have sex during menstruation. Five days before communion. Could not have sex. Which leaves us a total of 252 days, not including feast days, that you could not have sex. Now, someone do the math, the math for me. 252 minus 365. How many does that leave us? How many? 114. And what they suggest is that there are about 30 feast days. So 114 minus 30 leaves us how many? Not much. Right. Come on now. Let's... So this was the, the church during the Middle Ages. This was their view of sex. Let's keep going. Origin. Origin was, was another one of the church fathers. And Origin taught primarily that um, the book of Song of Solomon was like a necessary evil. Um, rumor has it, or let me say history has it, that Origen actually castrated himself. Um, and, that, and that through a lot of his theology on sex, the, the book of Song of Solomon, we have this beautiful poetry about my lover and entering into her garden and, and just how beautiful the, 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 uh, the psalmist paints for us a picture of, uh, of sex that Origen basically just went through and said, listen, this book means nothing, should not be read, is not relevant for the church of the day. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo was another one. And in fact, Augustine of Hippo was probably the most influential church father that that was around during this time that has allowed much of what we do today is rooted in what he taught. Augustine of Hippo taught that sexual intercourse transmitted the original sin. And the original sin is kind of defined not by the little sins that you do, but it's defined as the, the real big sin that kind of brought us here. It's called the original sin. And that sexual intercourse transmitted the original sin. So when you look at church history, church history is not in favor of sexual relations. And so as a result, much of our theology on sex and much of our practice on sex is informed by the crazy distortions of what the world tells us and the denial from what we get from the world, from the, from the church. And we kind of bring it all together. And we are here today as a result of it. And, when, if, and if we take a poll in church, some of us have some crazy ideas. Be honest with yourself. Some of your ideas are crazy and they're not biblical. Come on now, say amen. Can't substantiate it from the word of God concerning sex. A lot of it, a lot of our ideas are based on our experience. Unfortunately, unfortunately. And what I want us to do is to kind of establish a biblical um, process, a biblical thought, a biblical argument for, what, for why God created sex. 
Um, the, the, the positive thing is that despite all of the church history on sex and the denial of sex, Jews have always kind of had the highest regard for sex and sexuality. In fact, Jews said, um, Jewish thought says that when a husband and a wife come together, that the Shekinah glory is actually dwelling in between them. Amen. You want to know what the Shekinah glory is? I mean, it's, it, it, it's the same glory that rested on the burning bush. It's the glory, the presence of God. In fact, Jews go so far to say that you should have sex on the Sabbath. Amen, somebody. That you should have sex on the Sabbath to celebrate your faith. And so that your, so that your husband, so the, the man and the woman, the, the husband and wife should have sexual relations as a celebration of what God has done in their life. Let the church say amen. I wish all my members who are married would have sex before they came to church. I think they would just be happy in the Lord and, and rejoicing. And then go home and have some lay activity. Celebrate what God has done. Come on now, say amen. I see I'm not in Chattanooga, so I can say that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is what this is what Jewish thought. This is what they subscribe to. Um, Jewish thought. So, so when we look at it, when we look at it, there's a lot of different thoughts out there, and I think that God is going to be that God wants us to have a, a better, clear understanding of of what sex is and and what sex is not. Now, in order for us to really get a clear picture of sex. And, we have to really understand the context in which God allows sex. What is the context in which God allows sex? Between man and woman. But not just between man and woman. Marriage. Yeah, marriage. The context in which God blesses and smiles down upon sex is within marriage. However, if you know the devil, like I know him, he wants you to have as much sex before you get married. And as little sex after you get married. Come on now, say amen in this place. You know I'm telling the truth. He wants you to front load your life with all the sex that you can have. Because he knows if you front load your life with all the sex that you can have before you get married, after you get married, it's going to be messed up. You can have all types of images and thoughts running through your mind. You can be comparing your spouse to former experiences. And he knows that if he can get you jacked up on the front end, that your chances of survival on the back end are very slim. But that's not God's ideal. And so what I want to deal with this evening is I want us to deal specifically with the theology of marriage. And I want to go into that. In order to do this, look in your Bibles to Ephesians in chapter 5. Ephesians in chapter 5. It's a familiar passage, and we're actually going to start with verse 20, 22 of Ephesians in chapter 5. I hope you brought your Bibles this evening. In fact, if you want to pull it up on, Pro Present, if you, on the computer, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. I'm going to be reading from the... Um, from the, from the New King James Version. If you got the Word of God, let me hear you say amen. Oh, some of you, did, did you bring your Bible? Amen. If you didn't bring your Bible, shame on me. Anybody? Yeah, shame on me. If you didn't bring your Bible, slide next to somebody who does have, and they might bring it up, pull it up for us on the screen. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, how many of you all have read Ephesians 5 before? You have any type of concept or idea of what Ephesians 5 is about? You know, it's a text where it gives us, you know, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And it's a very good passage. I want us to really take a moment and just kind of break Ephesians 5 down. Now, when you look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, actually Ephesians 5, 1 through 22, 21. Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 really talks to the church about how the church should relate to one another. Amen, somebody. And so Ephesians 
5, 1 through 7, it talks to us about walking in love, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, it says, walk in the light. Verse 8 says, for we were once in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as what? Children of the what? Of the light. So Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 talks about walking in the light. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 talks about walking in wisdom. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as as wise, as wise. So Ephesians 1 through 7 deals with walking in love. Ephesians 8, 5, 8 through 14 deals with walking in light. Ephesians 15 through 21 deals with walking in wisdom. However, when we get to verse 22, it's almost like the author of, 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 of Ephesians turns the script from dealing specifically with how church members should relate to one another to dealing more so with how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And he does so very interestingly because he gives us the example that a husband and wife should, should relate to each other the same way that Christ relates to the church. So let's let's take a look at this thing. I'm going to use the board. Uh, Verse 22 says, wives do what? Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the what? Husband is what? Come on now, read it with me. The husband is what? Head of the wife. As as also Christ is what? Head of the church. And he is the what? Savior of the body. So let's let's, let's deal with this thing. Uh, Actually, let's read one more. Um, Verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is what? Subject to Christ, so let the what? Wives be what? To their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands do what? Love your wives, just as Christ also did what? Love the church and gave himself for her, that he might do what? Sanctify and cleanse with the washing of water by the what? By the word. So here we have a picture. We have a picture of Christ. Uh, we have a picture of Christ. And this picture of Christ, and Christ, of course, gets glory, so he's going to get some glory there. This picture of Christ in Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is the head of what? Of the church. So here we have the church. Uh, We have the, wait, that's not a church. There we go. Right. You with me? Okay, we have the church. We have Christ and we have the church. And the Bible is very clear that Christ is the head of the church and the church is the body of Christ. Now, what Ephesians 5 does, let's take a look here. Verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is also head of the church. And so what Ephesians does is it equates Christ's role in the church to the husband, equal sign, to the husband's role in the home. Christ's role in the church is equated to the husband's role in the home. And then it says, uh, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands. Then it takes a step further and equates the, the, the church's role in the Christ church relationship to the wife. And we'll put a little dress on her, and we'll color it in, and we'll put some pants on him, and we'll color him in. Y'all with me? Let the church say amen. amen. Christ, head of the church. The church, the body of Christ. Husband, head of the home. 
the wife, the body of the home, if we can say it like that. Let's look here at the scriptures. Wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And so what we have here then is the, the wife gets her cues on submission. I know that's like the dreaded S word that all women hate. Uh, um, yeah, that S word, but uh, it's in the Bible, so we're going to deal with it this evening. That's okay. It's all right. I'm not going to give you anything. I promise you, I'm not going to give you anything that's not in the Word of God. And so, and so, the the wife gets her cues on submission to the husband. She gets her cues from who? From the church, not from Christ. She gets her cues from the church. So the Bible says, for just as the church is subject to Christ, so that the wives be subject to their own husbands. So we'll put here, we'll put subject, and we'll also put submit. What does it mean to submit? Someone talk to me. Humility. What else? To show honor to? What does it mean? To willingly follow? You have to willingly to do it to, to acquiesce <laughs> to sa- to submit mean to sacrifice sometimes. Okay. In fact, the Greek word for submit actually means to come up under. It means to come up under. So it's like you're coming up under the authority of someone. You're coming up under the, the leadership of someone. The wife gets her cues from the church. Christ is not asking the wife to do anything that he's not asking the church to do. In fact, not go so far to say it like this. In fact, the, 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 the church is not based on the example of the family. The family is based on the example of the church. And so when you see how Christ relates to the church, that's how you should order your home life. How does Christ, how does Christ work in the church and how does the body relate to Christ? And that's how my home life should look. So, so in one sense, the Bible says that wives, verse 34, uh, 24, uh, just as uh, uh, the church is subject to Christ, so that the wives be their own husbands in every way. And then verse 25, husbands do what? Husbands, love your wives. Keep reading it for me. What else? Just as Christ loves what? Loves the church and did what? And gave himself for for her, uh, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And so the husband gets his cues on how to interact and how to relate with the wife as Christ relates to the church. Are you all with me here? How does Christ relate to the church? Okay, we'll put that word there. How does Christ relate to the church? Patiently, how else? compassionately. How else? Ah, there it is. There it is. That's the word I was looking for. Sacrifice. As the Bible tells us that as the wife is to submit to her husband, the husband is to sacrifice for the wife. Now, let me be very clear because we get our cues from Christ in the church. Who offered up what first? Didn't make any sense. Let me say it this way. Who made the first move in this relationship right here? Christ. And so the church's response of submitting to Christ is only a response to Christ's sacrifice for the church, which means that a husband, that a wife's submission to the husband is only in response to the husband's sacrifice for the wife. So as the husband makes sacrifices and as the husband 
make sacrifices. And as a husband, make sacrifices. The wife then recognizes the sacrifices that her husband is making and she willingly comes up underneath the leadership and the headship of her husband. As Christ does, as the church does to Christ. So as we recognize the sacrifice that Christ made for us on Calvary and we are moved at his grace and his mercy for accepting us and loving us, our, our, our response should be a willing response of obedience. That, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will respond. I love you because you first loved me. Yeah, yeah. And so it is in the marriage relationship. As the husband sacrifices, the woman, the wife, willingly submits. Now, you know, it's another sermon, but you can say, well, pastor, my husband ain't sacrificing, so I ain't going to submit. Uh, or or my, wife, my, my, uh, my wife's not submitting, so I'm done sacrificing. Listen, listen, are we, are we spiritually mature Christians here? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, Christ's sacrifice for us does not hinge on our submission to him. Oh, y'all don't hear me in this place. Y'all don't hear me in this place. Christ did not come and say, I'll sacrifice for them only if they submit to me. No, the, my Bible tells me that while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. So even if my spouse never decides to submit to me, the moment I stand before God and friends and family and make a pledge, a vow to her, I'm saying that for better or for worse, and worse is worse. As the head of the home, I must continue to take my cues from Christ and continue to sacrifice. And if my husband abdicates his responsibility and stops sacrificing for me. I'm taking my cues from the church and I'm still going to submit to my husband as long as we know that submission does not vi- violate the law or the word of God. Amen. In fact, read 1 Peter 3 when you get home and it talks about how the submission of a wife to a husband can actually bring that, bring that husband back in alignment with God. Um, that's Bible. You can you can take that to the to the bank. So 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 here we have this picture of sacrifice and submit. When we deal with sacrifice, what is it that a man is called to sacrifice? What, what is he called to sacrifice? Let me start you off uh, financially. <laughs> uh, financial sacrifices. Uh, any men in here who have made financial sacrifices for their? Yeah, you know you have. Any women in here who have, who have recognized the financial sacrifice that their husband has made for them? Yeah, they're, they're, they're called to make financial sacrifices. What other type of sacrifices does a husband make for his bride? Was that? Come on now, talk to me. Time, time, okay. What else? Ooh. Television. What else? Hanging out? What else? Come on now, y'all talk to me in here. Video games? <laughs> what, what else? What's that? Safety. He will, he, he will put himself in harm's way for the betterment of his family. That's a good one. Sleep. <laughs> Said peace. <laughs> Okay. What else? How how does how does a husband sacrifice for for his for his bride? Food. That's a good one. What else? Shelter. Okay. What else? We not we not getting along tonight, so I'm not gonna kick you out the bed. I'm gonna go to the couch and I'll let you have the bed. 
You know, what other, what other sacrifices? Are there others that you can just kind of think of that come to the top of your mind? His energy, his independence. What's, what's that? He's what? A shell of himself. He's not what he used to be. Oh, I say he's better now. <laughs> At least I'm better. <laughs> Bless the Lord. <laughs> uh, um, what else? What else? What else? What else? That's about it. Well, we know, we know that the, the list is exhausted. The list can go on and on. But the, the, the husband is called to make significant sacrifices for his wife. What are some things that, what are some things that the woman is called to submit? Some areas. Her mouth. I'm not going to put that on there, brother. What's that? Submit to sex. Okay. What else? Independence. Energy. Energy. What else? How so? Oh, oh, she and my sister's seven months, eight months, nine months pregnant. She's, 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 you could say you're sacrificing your body. Um, it won't be the same again. Your health. Well, we're, not, we're looking more so on what areas is our wives called to submit to when it comes to the, the headship and the leadership of the home? Huh? Child rearing. So we have two ideas of child rearing. Husband thinks one way, wife thinks another way. And it may be that the wife is called to submit to the, to the, to the best interest, to what the husband feels may be best. What else? What's that? What do you mean? What do you mean? Okay, so submit to the decision making of the husband. Okay, any, any others? Career, comfort, okay, time. Yeah, the list, the list can go on and on. The list can go on. Um, what's my point? My point is to show us a clear picture of what Christ has done for us and the response that the church has in to, to what Christ has done and to show you that whatever Christ does, that is the responsibility of the husband. And whatever, whatever Christ, whatever the church does, that is the responsibility of the wife. Now, some people don't like that analogy, but you can take it a step further that 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 for the husband and for the wife, Christ is the example because Christ submitted to the will of the father. Uh, you remember, he didn't want to go to Golgotha. Um, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You with me in here? But he submitted to the will of the Father. And submitting to the will of the Father, he gave wives an example of what submission looks like. And in making the sacrifice for the church, he gives husbands an example of what sacrifice looks like. So whether you're a husband or you're a wife, all of us can find our cues in this thing that we call the cross. So, question is, what does this have to do with sex? Glad you asked. The Bible tells us, look there in Ephesians 5. You still there? Ephesians 5. Verse 32. Verse 30. Let's go with verse 30. Ephesians 5, verse 30. If you got it, say amen. Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his what? Bones. You all with me? You all got it? Put it on the screen for me. Ephesians 5, verse 30. Stay with me. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall do what? Leave his father and mother and be do what? 
joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. This is a great what? This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning who? I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, that each one of you in particular so love his own wife and as her, himself, and let the wife see the respects her, of her husband. Um, it gives us a picture, Ephesians 5, that the husband and wife unit is one flesh. In fact, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that. They should leave and you should cleave and you become one flesh. But the Bible also tells us, specifically in Romans 11, that when you become a Christian, that you are actually grafted into Christ. And so this union here between Christ and the church is also one flesh. That Christ is one. When he came down and sacrificed and gave his life and he died that death, when he took our bodily form, uh, our wretched state, that he, he has forever and eternally joined himself to us. Let the church say amen. So that through the ceaseless ages of eternity, we will, be, we, will, we will wonder at the sacrifice of Christ when we come to his side and we see the nail prints in his hands and the, the, the pierced side on his side. We will recognize that Christ is forever joined one with his church. Now, my question is, how did Christ accomplish the one fleshness with the church? How did Christ join the church and himself and the church together? How? At the cross? How else? What's that? Covenant. Made a covenant relationship with us. Shed his blood for us. Oh, those are good. Those are good. What else? Ah, oh, he sacrificed. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to read this thing to you. I want to read this thing to you. Philippians. Where is Philippians in the Bible? Somebody tell me. After Ephesians. Thank you so much. Where's Ephesians? Oh, there we go. There we go. Ephesians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. If you got to say amen. Amen. I want the media team. Stay with me. Here we go. Ephesians. Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. And being found in what? Appearance as a man. He, Ephesians 2 verse 8. Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he did what? Humbled himself and became what? Obedient to what? What else happened? And then what else happened after that? Therefore God also hath what? Highly exalted him and given him the what? The name which is above every name that at the what? Name of Jesus every what? Knee should bow and those in heaven. And what else? Under the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ joined himself to the church by going to the cross and shedding his blood. And when he shed his blood in his humanity, in his human state, he forever linked himself to us. All of the church say amen to that. Amen, that we have a God in heaven that knows how we feel, that has experienced the physical groans of a, of a decaying flesh. He knows what we're going through. He's been where we are. And now he is exalted on the right hand of the Father. And forever with, with the image of what he went through in his mind, he knows how to deal with us and to comfort us and to, as the Bible says, secure us so that when we go through trials and tribulations, Christ is right there by our side every single step of the way. Let somebody in the church say amen. 
All right. So Christ joined us. Christ joined us to himself through going to the cross and making this selfless act on the cross. How is a husband and a wife, how do they experience one flesh? Come on, talk to me. Come on now. Through sexual relations, intercourse. Someone said um, consummation. What else? How else can we say it? No other ways to say it? (laughs) That's what it is. Let me be very clear. I want to make sure I get this thing clear. Listen, sex, sex in, let me back up and say this. Christ, the church, are one through Christ's selfless act of sacrifice. Hmm. The husband and the wife become one through the selfless act of sexual relations. Let that thing sink in there for a minute. Christ and the church became one through Christ's selfless act of sacrificing his life, shedding his blood. The husband, man and woman, husband and wife become one flesh through the selfless act of sexual intercourse. How is sexual intercourse selfless? Okay. Sex begins in the mind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Before there can be a good act, a real act, a noble act, the mind must leash. Mm. They sin against themselves. First Corinthians 6, yeah. Going against their own mind. Mm-hmm. 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 Yo, yo, you, you hit that thing right on the head. I'll say it like this. The sexual act is the highest act of, an, of, of unselfishness displayed between a husband and a wife. It's new to us because this is not the picture we get from the world. And much of our ideology concerning sex is informed by what we see on television, by uh, uh, what's that? Our experience by how people have treated us in the past. And so we have these distorted views. But, but the, the sexual act is the highest act of unselfishness when it comes to the husband and wife relationship. Now, now let me say it, let me say it like, like this. Sex is a need that we can only fully satisfy when we satisfy the need of our spouse. Sex is a legitimate need that we can only fully satisfy when we meet or satisfy the need of our spouse. And so if I go into the sexual act selfishly, as 99.9% now, all of us have gone, who are married, into the sexual act selfishly, I will never truly experience the essence of what God designed sex to be. Because sex is not intended to be a selfless act, selfish act. Sex is a selfless act. 
And there was silence at Glenville for the span of a half an hour. <laughs> Somebody talked to me in this place. What do I mean by that? Come on. Are you saying that the act, the physical act of sex is a byproduct of what takes on, what takes place throughout the course of the day? Oh, man. Listen, more than that. Listen. Uh, someone once told me that for men, and I believe it with all my heart, sex starts in the kitchen. <laughs> let, me, let me break this thing down for you. Uh, 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 uh. My wife, my wife has just worked a 12-hour shift at the hospital, and she's tired, and there's dishes in the sink, and the floor needs to be vacuumed, and uh, the clothes need to be folded, and the walls need to be washed, and the blinds need to be, need to be uh, uh, scrubbed, and the floor needs to be mopped, and, and I know, I know that my wife comes home, she's going to be tired, and so what I then do is I, I, I do a preemptive strike. <laughs> Y'all follow me in this place. Yeah, yeah, my brother, he understands what I'm saying. Uh, I go and I begin to take care of all of the needs of the house. I begin to wash the dishes and fold the clothes and vacuum the floor. And come on now, I got a witness in this place. And I begin to scrub, I begin to scrub the blinds. Because I know, I know that sex, sex, hear me now, sex for my wife is more, so, so, so much more than just a physical act. It's an emotional act. In fact, if my wife, if any wife is not in a state of emotional peace and tranquility where her spirit is open and her spirit is not oppressed or burdened, she may perform physically the act of sex, but you will not experience sex as God designed it to be, to be both a physical and spiritual experience. So sex begins in the kitchen. Where I go and the, the, the need of my wife, let me give you an example. My wife, uh, she uh, is, is not like many other wives. She loves to talk and she loves to be heard. And for uh, 30 years, um, uh, I was the one who talked and rarely listened to anybody. And so for the last eight months I've been married, I've been learning this thing called reflective listening. Do I got a witness in the house? Where I just sit and I just, I just listen and just kind of focus on, on what she's saying. And even though what she's saying may not really resonate with me, she's just talking about her day and their patience and all types of stuff that went on. And she just wants someone. Do I got a witness in the house? She just wants someone to talk to, someone who's going to listen to her. And, and my natural self says, man, I'm tired. I don't feel like listening to this, baby. Let's go do something. Let's watch TV. Let's go out. Let's do something else. But I know that right now she needs this. And so I then have to perform a selfless act and, and give her my undivided attention. Sex begins way before the bedroom because it's an emotional act. It's a physical act. It's a psychological act. It's a spiritual act. I, I go so far to say that if husband, husband and wife, if you are, are not edifying one another spiritually and experiencing divine worship in your home, you will never be able to experience the true essence of what God intended you to experience in the bedroom. Because sex is a spiritual act. It's where it's where you are able to stand naked before your your spouse. And I'm not just talking about physically naked, but emotionally naked and psychologically naked and and spiritually naked. You're able to express your fears and your insecurities and your frustrations. And you know that that other individual will not reject you. 
They won't turn you away. They won't push you aside. They won't, they won't run by your comments or, 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 or disregard your feelings. And so sex, sex, it is a, it is a selfless act. In fact, when you go into the bedroom with your wife, with your husband, see, the world has just jacked us up. Because when you go into the bedroom, the husband should go into the bedroom with, with one thought in his mind. How can I please my wife? How can I satisfy my wife? And the wife, the bride, should go into the bedroom with one thing in mind. How can I satisfy my husband? And so when these two come together, as Christ has come with the church, when these two come together and they are both trying to out-satisfy the other person, I guarantee you both individuals will be satisfied. But, but the world has distorted our view. Hear me now. The world has distorted our view of sex because the world is taught that if I don't get mine, then I'm not going to be satisfied. So let me go into this act and let me just get mine real quick. Even if my wife is sick, even if my husband's tired, even if, even, no, 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 let me give you another scenario. Even if, even my, if, if my husband has had a, a frustrating day and, and he wants to embrace me, he wants to experience intimacy, but I'm tired and I just don't feel like it, so he just got to wait until tomorrow or the next week or the next month. Come on now, talk to me in here. And so, and so, and so we go into, we go into the sexual experience with such selfish thoughts on our mind. But if the husband had in his mind, let me satisfy my wife. And if my wife is not in the mood or she's disturbed or her spirit, then let not my first priority be to try to get some for myself. But how can I minister to her? How can I bless her right now? And let the wife go into the bedroom thinking, uh, 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 I, I may be tired. I may have had a long day. The kids might have gotten my nerves, but I know what my husband needs. And I just want to bless him. I just want to minister to him. I want to just, I just want to, I just want to lavish upon him the love. So let me set aside what I want right now and engage in this selfless act of pleasing my spouse. When you do that, husband and wife, you will experience the Shekinah glory of God resting in your bedroom. And that it will be an experience that the world has been trying to fabricate for years. The world has been trying to reconnect the disconnect that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And we do it by all types of selfish ways. But Christ says, no, 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 no. If you're really going to experience this connection again between a husband and a wife, uh, uh, that, that it, it will only be done when you embrace the sacrificial spirit, the selfless spirit of Christ in your home. And so you go into it. And I recognize it's bigger than the bedroom. It starts in the kitchen. My wife recognizes, man, my husband has, he has sexual needs and I want to be the only person he's looking at. So don't let me, let me not give the devil an occasion to, 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 to distract my husband. Let me make sure that he's always satisfied. And the husband is thinking, man, my wife works hard and she has a, 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 a thousand co-workers she can talk to. But let me make sure that I'm the only man who has her ear and, and I'm the only one that satisfies her need for conversation and that she won't find it anywhere else in the world. Yeah, that's insane. And when you experience that level of selflessness, Christ is glorified. Now, now, let me say this and then we're going to close. Take some questions. The only way. 
myself, yourself, the only way we can experience this level of selfless, sacrificial, submissive uh, uh, position and posture before our husbands or before our spouses, we have to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The only way you can experience husbands, a, the only way a husband can, can, can be the, 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 the sacrificial leader of his home, and the only way a wife can be the submissive support of the home, is both parties must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because this is not something that comes natural for us. Naturally, I want to satisfy myself. Naturally, I want my wife to submit to me, and I don't ever want to make any sacrifices. And naturally she wants to, and and the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, that the husbands and the wives, they'll strive together. And they'll, they'll be striving for the mastery. The only way we can experience this is if the Holy Spirit is all up inside of our marriage. That the wife is constantly praying, Lord, just give me the spirit of Christ. Bathe my husband today. Lord, just cover him with your presence. Lord, give him a sacrificial spirit. Lord, give him the spirit of Christ. And the husband is constantly bathing his wife in prayer. Lord, just bless her today. Lord, let your face shine down upon her, oh God. Lord, just crown her with loving kindness and just lavishing prayers and, 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 and sacrifices and, and submission onto one another. The only way we can experience that is through the power of the Holy Ghost. So that's why when, we go to, when you go to your home and you look at your marriage and you look at your family's marriage and your, your parents' marriage and your neighbor's marriage, that they're also jacked up. Because the reality is you can't do it in yourself. It is impossible. Touch two people and say impossible. Impossible. And so if we're ever going to experience, listen, listen, if we're ever going to experience the ideal for what God designed sex for, we have to have the Holy Spirit. And I go so far, and I'm wrapping up, I go so far to say that sexual, the sexual act is a part of our sanctification. Y'all listen to me in here? The sexual act is a part of our sanctification. Because what is sanctification all about? More of you, less of me. More of you, less of me. And so when I go into the, 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 uh, to my home with my wife, I'm thinking, Lord, more of you, less of me. More of you, less of me. And when it comes to the sexual act, Lord, more of you and less of me. More of you and less of me. I must, you must increase. I must decrease. The sexual act is a part of our sanctification. So Christ is trying to do something in our lives. And my prayer, my prayer, my prayer is that we as a church, that you as husbands and wives and future husbands and wives, those of you who, who you may have been married and your husband may have passed, you may be divorced, wherever your plot in life, that you would use, that your life would be able to demonstrate this. And if you are past your married years, that you'd be able to teach other young women and other young men what marriage and sex is all about. So that we can debunk the myths of this world that have brainwashed us for so long, getting us to think that sex is all about me, me, myself, and I. No, no, no. Sex is about God. And sex is about edifying my spouse and glorifying God in my marriage. And that's God's ideal for us.